Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Well, huge news announced Saturday. Maybe one of the biggest animal welfare stories in years. Everyone is talking about the closing of Ringling Brothers Circus. What a shock. I have to say, even though we've been following struggles Ringling Brothers has been dealing with over the years, and and we've been criticizing their exploitation of animals for years, I did not expect this piece of wonderful news to get released so definitively. The circus, which has roots going back 146 years, truly has been an American icon, but could no longer withstand the pressure from the general public and many animal rights groups that indeed their animals have been abused and mistreated. And for this reason and others, they simply had to shut down. Ringling Brothers 2 touring circuses will perform 30 more shows until May. The final shows are May 7th in Providence, Rhode Island, and May 21st in Uniondale, New York. The circus was purchased by the Feld family in 1967, and in a press conference held on January 16th, that was last Monday, Juliet Feld indicated for the past decade the circus has seen a gradual decrease in sales, and the privately held company tried to maintain ticket sales during this time. However, with the retirement of their elephants in 2016, sales really plummeted. So last May, as you may know, and this was one of the biggest stories we covered in 2016, Ringling Brothers decided to remove all of their elephants from its performances after years of fighting with the animal rights groups. Now, Kenneth Feld, the company CEO and whose father bought the circus in 1967, tried to put on a brave face at the press conference last week. He encouraged people to buy tickets to their final shows so the shows would sell out and so people can have a final memory of the circus. He also said people could continue to enjoy circus history. And as you may know, there is a Ringling Circus Museum in Sarasota, Florida. However, clearly, in my opinion, Mr. Feld is feeling defeated and perhaps even a little bitter. He stated, quote, this is not a win for animal rights activists. This is not a win for anyone. So here we have a complete denial of reality. Of course, this is a huge win for animal rights activists. Individuals and groups have been protesting his very circus and its abusive confinement and treatment, not only of elephants, but of all kinds of exotic animals, literally for decades. And by the way, a lot of these groups are vocally taking credit for closing down the circus. I I guess this is an instance where the phrase, victory has many fathers, is appropriate. Mr. Feld, in also stating that this is not a win for anyone, seems to have forgotten the animals who are at the very center of what's happening. This is a huge victory for these captive, exotic animals who have endured sometimes decades of abuse and coercive training. Hopefully all the animals will be able to find some peace in the appropriate sanctuaries to live out the rest of their lives. I guess we'll just see how that plays out. Feld seemed to indicate that his circus has been unfairly targeted by animal rights groups when he stated that they, quote, will need to find a new agenda for fundraising. These are the words of a defeated billionaire.
Now, there are two other factors that are very key in leading to the closure of the circus. First is, and Feld actually got this right, is that our society has tremendously changed in the past decade. Children are on their smartphones playing electronic games, and they also have the the entire world of information and all their friends at their fingertips. So who needs to trudge on out to the circus? And Feld also cited increased costs, particularly in moving the circus around that hurt their bottom line. Secondly, were the ordinances many communities around the country have passed, which restricted whether the circus could come to their neighborhood or how it operated, not to mention the lawsuits against the Ringling Brothers. Now, May of last year, when Ringley Brothers announced that they were no longer going to use elephants in their shows, Fell did acknowledge that because so many cities and counties have passed these sorts of bans, it's difficult to organize the routine annual tours. And he stated fighting legislation in each jurisdiction is expensive. So here we are, and what's going to happen to the affected workers and to the animals? Well, more than 400 workers will be affected by the shutdown, and the company stated that it will help them gain new employment. And I do wish them well. I hope if they work with animals, they do so in a compassionate and humane manner. Now, for the animals, I guess time will tell as to whether each individual animal ends up in a truly safe environment. Juliet Feld said, quote, our commitment to all of our animals is for our lifetime. Okay, whatever. I am not sure exactly what that means, but that's how she put it. But the company didn't specify what will happen to the remaining animals, which include tigers, lions, horses, dogs, and camels. Okay, so here is an example of an ordinance that was passed that really interfered with the circus's ability to operate and one of the many factors that led to its closure. And what I'm talking about is the banning of the use of elephant bullhooks in Los Angeles. This ordinance passed in October 2013 outlawed the use of cruel, painful bullhooks, which are large, sharp metal tools used by the elephant handlers to painfully direct and control the elephant's movements. Now, without bullhooks, the elephants just cannot safely be controlled. This ban goes into effect this year, 2017, and evidently made Ringling Brothers weigh whether they would avoid their yearly appearances at Staples Center in Los Angeles altogether or come without elephants. Many other locations throughout the country banned the use or display of wild or exotic animals, greatly curtailing the ability of Ringling Brothers to operate their business. By the way, I do want to once again acknowledge the great work of L.A. Councilman Paul Koretz, who championed the bullhook ban. We had him on the show to talk about his bullhook ban because this was such a big accomplishment. So the animal welfare community definitely and appropriately sees this as a huge victory and the culmination of a decade-long shared effort. According to Adam Roberts, CEO of Born Free USA, quote, the animals used in Ringley Brothers shows have languished in captivity day after day, year after year. They've been forced to travel the country in cramped transport cages, endure unacceptable training methods, and climb on stage under bright lights in front of loud crowds. They have had to live and behave utterly unnaturally, and it's absolutely time to respectfully retire them to live the remainder of their lives in peace. 
Jan Kramer, president of Animal Defenders International, said, quote, after decades of exposing the suffering of animals in circuses behind the scenes, we are pleased to hear that Ringlings has finally bowed to public opinion. It was a mistake for them not to see the trend away from animal shows to human-only performances over a decade ago. Circuses can survive without the animal performances. So pretty much everyone in the animal welfare movement is elated. Still not everyone gets the importance of the ringling closure. Take, for instance, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee. He tweeted, Ringling Brothers Circus Shutdown. Very sad. Greatest show on earth. Won't be seen by future generations. You know, I don't know. What can I say? How ignorant and uninformed. And I'll tell you something I noticed over the past decade, especially, is this decline in the interest of parents bringing their families to the circus to watch the animals perform their unnatural tricks, right? I mean, we know wild animals jumping through hoops of fire or standing on their heads only perform because of cruel and punishing training methods. I really think there's been this growing understanding in the general population that there really is an element of animal exploitation in circuses like Ringling. And as you probably know, because I've talked about this many times on the show before, I am especially happy to see the closure of Ringling Brothers, not because I dislike circuses or the Feld family, but mainly because I feel that showing children how we humans exploit animals and use them for our own entertainment and dominate them teaches them a very bad lesson. And I'll tell you, this closure is a monumental milestone for another reason. It vindicates the viewpoint and the work done by scores of organizations and innumerable people over many years to explain, to cajole, to teach everyone and felt that these animals were indeed being exploited and abused. This is a victory, not only for the animals, but for our civilization. And maybe we're coming to our senses just a little bit. And this closure certainly will provide a lot of inspiration for animal advocates around the world as they take on other causes to protect and help animals. Don't go away. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild, to animals on farms and in agriculture, to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses 
preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Haiti and the Bahamas are still devastated by the effects of Hurricane Matthew this past October. As a leader in the region, the Sandals Foundation, the nonprofit arm of the Sandals and Beaches Resorts, feels it's our responsibility to lend a helping hand to our neighboring islands. Please donate to the Sandals Foundation Hurricane Matthew relief efforts. 100% of your donation goes towards emergency relief, like water, food, and shelter, along with products to clean and sanitize local water supplies. Donate today by visiting sandalsfoundation.org. Welcome back to the show. Currently, medical marijuana is legal in 28 states and in D.C., and recreational marijuana is legal or about to become legal in seven states. Chronic pain and anxiety are so prevalent that many of us know someone using cannabis in some form or another. So it's not surprising to me that many dog and cat guardians would consider medicinal use of cannabis for their animals' illnesses or other problems. Of course, this is all very new, and chances are your veterinarian is not going to directly help you in this regard. But the use of cannabis for pets is expanding, and you might wonder, can it help my dog's arthritis or her pain from cancer? Can it make her less anxious or reduce cat box issues? Here now is a leader in this growing field, Juliana Carella, who is CEO of a business called Auntie Dolores. Welcome to the program, Juliana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Juliana, please first tell us about your human business, which is based in Oakland. Sure. I started Auntie Dolores in 2008 in San Francisco, which is the birthplace of medical cannabis. And um, we started the business because there weren't a lot of options for humans at the time for high quality gourmet edibles. So we wanted to reach that market and provide some interesting products. Um, we're, we're one of the oldest edibles companies in the world and very excited to um, be part of this growing community. And I'll presume that you've seen positive effects on a variety of human afflictions. And indeed, it does seem like the rest of the country is beginning to get on board. So let's talk now about animals. How did the animal part of your services begin? Well, actually, it started because a lot of the patients that were using our human products were beginning to ask about whether or not they could give the products to their animals. And, you know, because at the time we were producing THC products only, uh, you know, we'd seen the effects of THC toxicity on animals, especially dogs, and we were very concerned about that. Uh, we were just becoming familiar with CBD in 2012 and decided, let's try making some products with CBD, which we know to be safe for animals. And um, it has such a long list of amazing health benefits. Um, and because it's not psychoactive the way THC is, perhaps this is a, a good direction to go with this product line. And since 2012, um, we've had a, a really good chance to see exactly how the product works with animals and um, also helping pet owners that don't always know what direction to go with regard to giving their animals uh, phytocannabinoids. You know, I'm really glad you mentioned about the safety issues of these products. In the news, we hear stories about dogs getting into the THC containing edibles made for people and getting quite sick. 
the reason why it's not great to give a high dose of THC to a dog is because they've got quite a concentration of receptors in their brain. They have more receptors than any other animal, and animals in general have more receptors than humans, so their tolerance level is uh, quite different. And um, dogs in particular can develop static ataxia from THC toxicity. Um, CBD, on the other hand, doesn't cause any of those problems and can, in fact, ameliorate the problems associated with THC toxicity. So CBD really is the other part of the story, and it's the part that's um, important to animals. And Juliana, we are talking mostly about dogs here, right? Or do people with other companion animals buy your products? Absolutely. Uh, We've got quite an interesting mix of animals using our products now, from hamsters and rabbits and cats to even skunks, um, horses, uh, turtles, you name it. All animals except for insects have an endocannabinoid system, so they're going to respond to varying degrees to these different phytocannabinoids. Juliana, specifically, what products are you making and selling? So we sell our dog um, hemp wellness chews. They come in two different sizes and two different flavors. Uh, There's the small um, product for small animals, and it has one milligram per chew. And then there's also the large chews, which have two and a half milligrams per chew. And then both of those sizes come in the pumpkin and the blueberry flavors. Uh, We just introduced um, CBD capsules recently. There are 25 milligram capsules. Those are great for larger animals or animals that have more serious health conditions. And then we're about to introduce tinctures, which will be suitable for small animals, uh, including cats and rabbits and uh, hamsters and other small animals. So what are the most common ailments being treated here? Well, um, according to the feedback that we get from our customers, uh, the number one reason that um, you know human companions are buying the product for their animals is for anxiety, and that includes you know separation anxiety, anxiety about going to the vet, about going to the groomer, um, you know, getting the nails clipped, um, you name it, anything from thunderstorms to you know fireworks. Those are all um, great times to give an animal treatables to alleviate the anxiety. Uh, the second largest group, according to the data that we've collected, would be pain and inflammation associated with arthritis. A lot of dogs and other animals with arthritis are using the product to ameliorate those symptoms. And then, you know, the third group is uh, probably epilepsy patients and dogs that have epileptic seizures regularly. Uh, We've seen a reduction of seizures and in some cases a complete removal of, of all of those symptoms. Those are the three largest groups that we see using the product with success. What feedback do you get from veterinarians? The feedback we've received from veterinarians has been really great. Um, We've got uh, quite a few veterinarians across the country that are suggesting the product for their patients. Um, We've even got some veterinary hospitals that are um, collecting their own data and, um, you know, collecting their own uh, testimonials from the patients of theirs that are using the product. And uh, we've heard quite a lot of um, great feedback across the board for a lot of different conditions, Um, not just the ones I mentioned, but additional conditions that we actually didn't have any idea 
were going to be successfully addressed with CBD and other phytocannabinoids. So this has been a real learning experience for us. Um, there's a, a true lack of research due to um, the Schedule One narcotic status of cannabis. And so we really rely on the feedback of these doctors to tell us exactly what kind of results they're getting. Where do you think this industry, and I'm talking about animals here, is going? I'd like to see um, less misinformation out there. I'd love to see more research, and I'd love to really see this develop into what it can develop into. Uh, There's unfortunately a lot of roadblocks in the way, which um, we're still dealing with as an organization. Um, But I don't see why there shouldn't be numerous products on the market that are addressing all these health concerns. Um, Many of the health concerns are... Um, unfortunately not being addressed successfully with other pharmaceutical drugs. So um, even though this is a long battle for us to fight, it's an important one, and it's one that is based on compassion for these animals that are suffering. How can my listeners learn more and find out if their pets might benefit? Well, they can visit our website, treatables.com. I'll spell it out for you. It's T-R-E-A-T-I-B-L-E-S.com. We're not veterinarians, so we, we don't make any claims about this product at all. We're actually not allowed to make any claims. But we do try to share the information that we've received from our customers. Juliana Carilla, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here's your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting. And this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. Welcome back to the show. You know, we've talked about working dogs on the show, uh, many times dogs in the military, police dogs, and so on. But did you know there's a team of dogs that protect the President of the United States? I want to welcome best-selling author Maria Godavage, whose new book is Secret Service Dogs, The Heroes Who Protect the President of the United States. Welcome, Maria. Thank you for having me on your show. Maria, I didn't know there was such a team. Tell us about them. Yeah, a lot of, you know what, I didn't know, and I've written two pretty big books on military dogs, so they're working dogs, and I had heard from military dog handlers, um, with, and they speak with great pride with how they sometimes would support the Secret Service on various Secret Service missions that were really big, um, meetings, events like UN General Assembly, and I thought, wow, you know, so dog handlers are helping the Secret Service, but are there even Secret Service dogs? Mm-hmm. You know, I should know, yeah. and it turns out that there are, but they've been working in the shadows for actually 40 years now they really don't make the, they generally don't make the news and so i thought you know let me let me try to to, to get hold of this story and mm-hmm. when i started looking into it i knew it was something i'd have yeah. to write a book about so what are the jobs that they have what are the sort of classifications okay. that you got 
there are uh, the ones that tourists are most likely to see mm-hmm. will be wandering around on the outside of the White House fence. Um, say you're on the Pennsylvania Avenue north side, you may see a couple of guys in uniform walking, little dogs, friendly dogs, like um, they're called friendly dogs, mm-hmm. quote unquote. It's a much more, um, much longer term in real life, but they're floppy eared dogs like Springer Spaniels, Labrador Retrievers, and they'll be, they're sniffing for people who are um, pot- potentially carrying explosives, who are moving through crowds. So this would be to stop perhaps a suicide bomber, um, another layer of protection for the presidential, uh, for where the president is. And then um, inside the White House fence, there are emergency response team dogs, and they are the tactical dogs of the unit, and they are, they're the ones who will physically apprehend mm-hmm. anyone trying, if they need to, um, trying to do harm to the White House, mm-hmm. the president, anyone within the White House fence. And then there are loads of explosive detector dogs all over, uh, everywhere the president goes, there are going to be these dogs leading the way um, so that there are hopefully no explosives mm-hmm. where, when the president or vice president arrives. Uh, so that's the general uh-huh. overview. There are lots of subcategories, but those are the big ones. And 40 years it began, 40 years ago. Yeah, 40 years ago, um, they, the Secret Service had been using various police agencies around the country uh, when, when the president traveled. And that was just kind of getting a little hard to coordinate, and the quality wasn't always there. So they decided, let's, let's do this ourselves. And, um, and they did. And at first, it wasn't a big success, because they worked with the Metropolitan Police Department in D.C. to, uh, to get dogs. And they, they, were, they didn't have the best dogs. They were given very aggressive dogs. And they weren't easy to work with. And they trained them in the way that they would train narcotics dogs, which is to dig at explosive narcotics when they find them. So when you're digging and pawing at an explosive, that can be dangerous. So they quickly learned that that wasn't the best way and started training at Lackland Air Force Base. And it became a really good program very quickly after that. Have there been any notable incidents, any close calls or any any of the dogs hurt or, or killed on duty? Yeah, um, um, there was the one thing that really made headlines with the dogs um, was a couple of years ago, I don't know if you may have seen it, um, um, there was a camera crew that happened to be at the White House at the time that a fence jumper jumped over. It was uh, actually almost two years ago right now, and the the jumper got over at night and was intent on getting to the White House, Mm -hmm. and uh, the dogs were one at a time sent out to stop him, you know, that he didn't listen to their commands of the Secret Service. So they went after him and he beat the heck out. He kicked one dog super hard in the stomach and then he like really pounded on this other dog's face time after time and the dog didn't give up. And Mm. in the end, the dogs were able to stop him before maybe stronger force had to be used. Got it. You know what I love is that um, after after he he did all that hard work and took that beating, he just he, he when he and his handler were more sequestered and away from everyone else, he tapped on his handler and that's how he asked, "Can I get a hug?" And he just he went up and he hugged his handler and his handler hugged him so hard and mm. he was, he got a little teary because you know his dog he he would have given it all. And what sort of training do the dogs? actually undergo and particularly ongoing training. I know it's a challenge to keep them really interested and at their very top form as the years go by. 
Right, yeah. So their initial training is intense, and some of them get training already in Europe, where most of them come from, because that's where these dog breeds are much stronger. And then um, they are always, I've never seen an agency, and I've worked with a lot of military, um, training like this, at this level, with all, they have to, they have to pass tests every month, and because think of the mission, they're, they're protecting the President of the United States, so they have to be in top form at all times. So the way they keep them interested is, of course, the dogs don't know they're protecting the president, Democrat, Republican, whatever. It doesn't matter. They're, um, they just want a toy, their Kong um, or a ball, and mostly their handlers love, their, their praise and love from their handler. So that's what they're really working for, and it's, and it's a game to them. It's fun, and they, they, they love it. That's what they, they choose, these dogs who have these high drives, and then they work with them on that. And they, keep, they always keep it interesting. They, you know, in real life, you're not going to go around, thank God, finding explosives all over the place. So every so often, they'll just have to um, put a scent somewhere when they're doing training so that they get that reward and they know that the game is always on. Now, the book is uh, just out, and I have it right here. It's got a bunch of nice pictures, and you've... uh told me that it was hard to get access. It was a real a challenge to really get in there. Describe that a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, you think about the Secret Service. They've been um, kind of raked over the coals by the media in the last few years. And um, here I am, a journalist, trying to get access to do a book on Secret Service dogs. And that was, it took, they were in transition. They got a new director when I, while I was in the process of trying to get through um, this, this whole um, approval. And and it took a total of nine months waiting and, and going through each level higher and higher to see if this was going to work. And I, I could have had a baby in that time, <laughs> but it was it was worth the wait. And uh, I was I was encouraged along the way that this was going to work. And the only stipulations were really about um, not giving away anything that could jeopardize operational security. And that if I ever had questions or issues, I would run it by them because I, I certainly don't want to be the one who does anything that could compromise anyone. So the dogs travel around the world. Yeah. The dogs are the frequent flyers of the canine world. The average uh, explosive detector detector dog for the Secret Service goes does about 200 um, plane trips in their career. Wow. And, you know, they're super busy right now because they also protect, um, I don't know when this is going to run, but they also protect presidential candidates. Mm-hmm. So they're out there stomping along with um, Trump and Clinton right now. So they're extra, extra busy, but they do. They travel the world. They go everywhere the president goes and make sure it's all clear. Maria, what were the biggest surprises or surprise that you encountered in your research? Um, I was really surprised how how integral the dogs were at every level of the circles of protection for the president. They, you know, you'd, you'd think, okay, they'd, they'll just be here, or they'll just be here, but the, of course the president has, has many levels of protection, many layers, and there are dogs embedded in many, many of those. One thing that was fun to discover was that um, whenever a regular visitor goes to the White House to do a tour, they're sniffed by a dog, and they don't even realize it. I didn't realize that the first time I did a White House tour, that a dog had had to give me the thumbs up, basically, because the dog is sort of behind a, a little wall, a little screened wall, where if you really look carefully, you could see it, but there is a little, there's a fan blowing from uh, sort of the ceiling area, blowing your scent gently oh, down to where the dog and the handler are. Interesting. And and so that is just another layer of um, of protection for you know your White House tours. So they're just that dogs are everywhere, and that that was surprising and eye opener, especially since I, 
didn't even know there were dogs in the Secret Service until you know, a couple years ago. The book is Secret Service Dogs. Maria Gadavich, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I want to remind you to visit us at animalstodayradio.com. Like us on Facebook and go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Each week, we bring you the latest animal news from around the globe. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. And if you like what you hear, consider donating to our cause of promoting compassion and respect for all animals. That website, again, is aianimals.org. With us now is Dr. Lori Marino to tell us about a great symposium that's coming up. Hi, Lori. Hi. How are you, Peter? <laughs> oh, just great. So what, what's going on? Well, we've got a really exciting event coming up next month in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's called the I Am Not an Animal Conference. We are basically trying to address the question of the mass extinction head on. Mm. As you know, we are well into a sixth mass extinction on the planet, and there's more poaching and exploiting and slaughtering of animals than ever before. Uh, So we want to take a deeper look at the psychological reasons why our species continues to be such a destructive force on the planet. Okay, and where and when? It is in Atlanta, Georgia at the Emory Conference Center Hotel, February 24th and 25th. Mm -hmm. Lori, who's putting on the symposium? The symposium is being organized by myself, by Michael Mountain, and by... Dr. John Shackey, who is an ecologist at UGA. We're bringing together just uh, an A-list of prominent leaders in different fields. For instance, our keynote address will be given by Carl Safina, Mm -hmm. who is a renowned ecologist. We will have Stephen Weiss, who's the president of the Non-Human Rights Project, Uh, Hal Herzog, who's an author, and a human animal studies uh, scholar, uh, Jonathan Crane, who's a bioethics scholar at Emory, many, many people. Great. So it is, it is really an incredible lineup of thinkers and leaders in the field. How can people uh, register and get more information? Well, they can go to our website at www.not-n-animal. Very good. Lori Marino, looking forward to it. Thanks very much, Peter. When educator-turned-hip-hop artist D1 finished paying back his student loans, he celebrated by writing the song Sally Mae Back. Now he's teaming up with Sally Mae to help students get on track to paying off their loans. I'm passionate about helping people learn about financial literacy. The reality is that students are hungry for information. They want to understand the facts about paying back their loans and the best way to do it. Sally Mae's Rick Castellano adds, We're thrilled to work with D1 to help students get into the rhythm of repayment. He lays out the process and steps that are both direct and doable, teaching the right moves for building credit and successfully paying back student loans. Now through January 11th, Sally Mae customers with eligible student loans have the chance to win up to $10,000 to pay down their loans. For D1's complete list of tips and to enter the Pays to Repay contest, visit SallyMay.com. That's SallyMay.com. I'm Bob Pebo for the Consumer Radio Network.
Bates, Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio. And I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild, to animals on farms and in agriculture, to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Almost everyone has heard of cat scratch disease, but I'll tell you, most people I talk to don't know anything about it. For instance, how are cats involved? And what exactly does this do to them or to people? Fortunately, veterinarian Dr. Robert Reed is with us again to explain. Dr. Reed is medical director of VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Nice to talk to you. Okay, Robert. What is cat scratch disease? But cat scratch disease, as you might guess, is a disease that affects cats and, interestingly, affects people as well. In fact, that's what causes most of the interest in the disease because it's one of those conditions that cats can give to people. Now, it's a bacterial disease, right? It is a bacterial disease. It's caused by an organism called Bartonella insulae, and Bartonella is generally the term that's used to describe it. In fact, the disease is sometimes... Uh, called Bartonellosis, uh, to include all of the syndromes caused by bacteria of that type. So it's a bacterial disease caused by Bartonella, and that's harbored and spread among cats. So do the cats get sick from carrying the bacterium? Usually not, and there's a little bit of debate about that. We generally believe that cats are not made sick by the virus or by the bacterium, but um, they can develop syndromes that are associated with it. Most of the time, people believe it's because they have a bacterial infection with Bartonella along with another infection like a viral infection like feline leukemia virus or feline immunodeficiency virus. Now let's talk about this disease in humans. What sort of illnesses do people get from Bartonella? The most common syndrome that people get is a local infection after a scratch occurs They'll get a little bump on their skin, usually occurs about a, within a, about a week of the incident. And then two to three weeks later, they'll get a swelling in the lymph node in the area of the injury. Um, often the swelling of the lymph node occurs after the wound is healed, and they don't even make the connection. And is this dangerous to people? You know, it depends. Most people with a healthy immune system will recover without any treatment at all. I think the greatest concern comes from people whose immune systems are compromised, either from illness or from medication, and they may be vulnerable to more significant illness associated with Bartonella, and those types of people should be particularly aware of the tendency for cats to carry it and um, how they may deal with how they might deal with it if uh, they did get a scratch, and of course their physician would want to be involved. But, you know, there's an important thing to remember with cat scratch syndrome and cats that they only can transmit it if there's a flea involved. The flea is absolutely necessary for the transmission of Bartonella, both between cats and from cats to people. A flea has to bite a cat with Bartonella, 
to become infected and then passes the organism in their feces, which is known as flea dirt, and remains on the cat until the cat scratches either itself or it gets the, the flea dirt embedded under their nails and scratches either a person or another cat. It's actually transmitted through the flea feces into the skin of the victim. Robert, how common is this disease, and how do I know if a given cat is likely to infect me? It's a really good question. You know, it's pretty common in areas where flea infestation is common. Remember, the flea is, is required for the transmission of the bacteria. So you'd find that an outdoor cat or a stray cat in an area where fleas are common has a very high chance of being infected with Bartonella. And it's really hard to tell if a cat has it. There are several tests available, but none of them is completely reliable. So we usually recommend that if a person is adopting a cat, uh, that they make sure, if there's a concern about their immune system, that they make sure that they get a little bit of an older cat, since kittens are much more likely to scratch and probably more likely to, to harbor the fleas and the bacterium, you get a little bit of an older cat. You never encourage any rough play with them. And you try to keep it in the, in, in the house or in an environment where they're not likely to be exposed to fleas. Robert, do cats need routine flea treatment if they're outdoor, indoor cats? Yeah, I think so. If, if you live in an area where fleas are common, then you should use some sort of flea control to keep the fleas away from your cat. If the fleas are not biting and surviving on your cat, then they're not likely to transmit the bacterium at all. Robert, can you review a checklist of things people can do to minimize their exposure to cat scratch disease? Oh, sure, Lori. There's actually a list that's published by the American Association of Feline Practitioners that's very helpful. Um, The first thing they suggest is that you exercise flea control uh, and maintain it year-round on your cats. And if a member of the family has an immune condition that may make them more vulnerable, that you should only adopt a healthy cat that's over a year of age and free from fleas, um, that you should discuss the advantages and disadvantages of testing a cat with your veterinarian because there are some pros and cons of that. Um, anyone with a healthy, with, uh, other than a healthy immune system should avoid contacts with cats that they don't know, especially stray cats. Um, cat's claws should always be trimmed, but not necessarily declawed. And in fact, they're not recommending declawing to prevent exposure. Um, scratches and bites should always be invo- avoided as much as possible. In, in other words, you don't want to induce rough play with your cat. Um, any wounds that you acquire should be washed quickly. Um, and if you have an immune condition, check with your physician. And um, since some people have suggested that uh, Bartonella might be transmitted in the saliva for cats who are infected. It's recommended that they not cats not be allowed to lick open wounds on people with weakened immune systems, although there's never really been any proof that saliva can transmit it. It's a very common recommendation. Any final comments? Well, you know, I, I think what you said earlier in our discussion that cat scratch syndrome is something that everyone's heard of. I'm sorry, cat scratch disease. It's something that everyone has heard of but just don't know very much about. And I think you'd find that it is pretty common in cats in areas where fleas are prevalent who live outdoors, but it's surprisingly uncommon in people. 
So I think we, we fear it more than is probably warranted, but it's still something you should know about, particularly if you're a member of a more vulnerable class of individual. Veterinary Dr. Robert Reed, thank you very much. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. <laughs>